SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. The, the, the game that has the, the uh, uh, what's it called, Wolfenstein, with the, with the Nazis in the underground chambers, and you kill them and you shoot them. Uh, all of this was good, healthy fun for kids. Now, all of a sudden, here comes uh, the U.S. government, and it says, you've got a violent industry there, and someone's going to have to rein you in. So quick like a bunny, they run and they put their own kind of rules out. We'll do this and we'll do that. You, you watch, we're going to be different. We're going to be better. We're going to be a lot better. On the day that I'm showing this to you, on the CBS News... I heard about a seven-year-old kid who had taken a gun to school and killed an eight-year-old kid. I wonder where he learned that. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise Hello and welcome to SequelCast 2, a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Shergi. And I'm Thrasher. And uh, this episode, you know, we do these every once in a while when someone of um, significance to, to us and usually to film in some way have, uh, have passed, have died, have bit the bucket, kicked the bucket, whatever you want to say. I said bit the bucket. That's not even a phrase, I don't think. That, that's that's a strange portmanteau uh, of the phrase "bit the bullet" and "kicked the bucket." That that's it. And also, I'm thinking at um, at work, I do IT for my day job. We use a program called Bit Bucket to make things even more confusing. If so, you could buy a farm in there somewhere, I think it would be complete. Yeah, bit the bit the farm, ate the bucket. I don't know. Okay, so anyway, we are talking about uh, the great writer. Rock on tour, Harlan Ellison, who uh, just passed in um, 2018, July 2018, uh, something along those lines, very recently. The page I've pulled up does not have his date of death, which his date of death, frankly, doesn't matter. But um, yeah, so he, he had a, a long life. I'm, among other things, you know, we'll, we will talk about books and uh, even, even a video game he was involved with. Um, and, and stuff that he's written that we've enjoyed, both fiction and nonfiction. And I will also recount my uh, opportunity I got where Harlan Ellison um, insulted me in front of a group of 100 people at a convention. Yeah, yeah you got personally Ellison. I did. And uh, But before I, I go into one of those stories or we go into one of those things, I think we should, we should talk about who was Harlan Ellison. Well, he was, I guess, for, for better and worse, he was science fiction's greatest crank. At least yeah. that's how a lot of that's how a lot of people remember him. Uh, earlier in his career, he was sort of the the enfant terrible of science fiction. Uh, he 
he was sort of really adamant about having science fiction treated uh, as a serious art form, uh, and would would tell would would tell you off uh, if uh, if you didn't agree that it was a legitimate art form. There is a uh, there's an infamous story of of him walking off of a live television interview before he had even said the first word because he was so offended about the news anchor's introduction to the interview. I'm, I'm not surprised about that. The other thing about uh, Harlan is. Um, he really fought for writers getting paid fairly. He fought for writers' unions for the Writers Guild of America, and even even towards his uh, his dying day, he he has you know his YouTube channel unfortunately does not have as much material as, as uh, I would have liked because I think that's that would have been a good venue for him. I think we were talking about this off mic, Thrasher, but didn't he do these sort of little short clips on Sci Fi Channel when Sci Fi Channel started of him yeah, doing that, his rants? Yeah, because I had um, I I had first been exposed to Harlan Ellison's writing because I had seen his Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. But the first time I was ever consciously aware of Harlan Ellison was when the Sci-Fi Channel launched in the early '90s. They had a weekly show called Sci-Fi Buzz, which was sort of a news and entertainment from the world of science fiction and fantasy. And every episode included a little three to five minute rant by Harlan Ellison and. Every conceivable topic was covered in these segments, and sometimes they were touching, sometimes they were angry. Uh, he, he did an amazing rant about bribing critics, where he basically showed off a lot of swag that was in his study. Uh, and you sort of talked about the difference between, you know, this is something I like. I like this. I'm not telling you to see the movie. Uh, the movie's not good. Uh and it, it was just, it was kind of really fascinating. It was it was the first time I was really ever sort of aware of, of the relationship, the overlapping relationship that exists between the creator of a work of art, uh, its critics, and its audience. Yeah, and I really like that he wrote fiction and nonfiction. And frankly, I think I prefer his nonfiction, but it could be I haven't read a whole lot of his fiction. Uh, but yeah, Harlan Ellison, I was first exposed to, at the time... Um, in the in the early '90s, I subscribed to a computer game magazine. It was not PC Gamer. It was not Computer Gaming World. It was some um, similar kind of magazine that was slightly cheaper. And they had a, a interview with Harlan Ellison talking about the um, computer game adaptation that um, not only was he in, involved in, he also did voiceovers. Uh, a voiceover for a main character in it. I have no mouth, I must scream. And I must scream. And I must scream. Sorry. People mess up that title a lot. Um, <laughs> if you look online, they'll say like, I have no... I just saw on Twitter today, someone made a joke, I have no mouth, I must mouth. Um, all sorts of things I, going on there. Actually, can we can we do a quick, uh, a quick uh, tangent... Yes. So uh, I read one of one of my favorite uh, magazines is uh, Film Facts, which is it's it's all just you know old science fiction and fantasy films. And there was a, a long form interview with I think the writer and producer of uh, a B movie called Frankenstein and the Monster from Outer Space. And there's a sidebar to this interview where he talks about being on a panel at a science fiction convention with Harlan Ellison. It was like him, Harlan Ellison, and another writer of science fiction films. And around the time, 
a film adaptation of the Harlan Ellison novella A Boy and His Dog had been released and the host yes. of the panel had accidentally gotten the title uh, wrong he, he introduced <laughs> and the uh, author of the novel on which the uh, on which the film A Boy a Dog was based we have Harlan Ellison and that Harlan Ellison really <laughs> liked the host and so for the rest of the panel only referred to his novella and his movie as A Boy a Dog <laughs> That's, that's great, and that, that's uh, kind of the contrast because you know he didn't suffer fools lightly. But if you if he liked you, he would treat you very very well. That's that's my understanding. Yeah, if he liked you, he really liked you. Um, he did. I was I was watching some clips this past week to prep for this episode, sort of reminiscing about him. And uh, and there's there's a famous one he did on on you can find it on YouTube. Just look up Harlan Ellison, pay the writer, mm-hmm. and he goes into a rant. Um, he was uh, friends of the um, writer. Uh, TV writer J. Michael Straczynski, and um, was a consultant for the TV show Babylon 5. Now, that, that he didn't write episodes for Babylon 5, but he just sort of would give advice here and there about, um, I, I don't know, backstory or characters or, or whatever it is. Usual so, consultant stuff. Yeah, yeah, usual consultant work. And uh, he, he did a lot of TV work through his career, which we'll touch on later. But in this video, he mentions, oh, uh, Warner Brothers was prepping the, the DVD box sets of Babylon 5 to come out, which were, at the time, it was pretty unusual for um, TV seasons to come out on DVD in a box set. And uh, But Babylon 5 did a pretty good um, job of it. They were pretty, you know, handsome sets. They sold pretty well uh, with some commentaries and stuff. And they had, uh, Warner Brothers had footage, about 20 minutes or so of Harlan, vintage footage of Harlan Ellison talking about what he thought about Babylon 5 and what he contributed to it. And they said, hey, uh, we'd, you know, we'd love to put this clip on the DVD. Uh, can you let us do it? And he says, yes, if you pay me. And there was a long pause on the other end of the line, and Warner Brothers said, well, uh, well, no, everyone else did it for free. And he's like, yeah, not <laughs> assholes like them. He's like, and they're like, but the video's already been recorded. He's like, I don't care. If you want my likeness on there, you're going to pay me. And... Needless to say, it, um, his interview, which I, I'm sure would have been great, was not on the DVD. And the point he made is, you know, if you're using my stuff in any way, shape, or form, I should be paid for it, whether it's an interview, whether it's an article, or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he said also, like, the context, who am I dealing with? I'm dealing with Warner Brothers. They're not lacking for money. I'm not dealing with, like, Joe Bob's two-bit small publishing press. And beyond that, though, it's my understanding that he had overall a good experience consulting for Babylon 5. Oh, so yes, I yeah, he did, he did. I bet if they gave him a low-ball offer, he would have accepted it. Probably, yeah. We may, you know, might be talking a few thousand bucks or a few hundred, I don't know. I mean, the the most infamous price I have heard of someone being paid to do a DVD extra is on Total Recall. Uh, it has an audio commentary from Arnold Schwarzenegger and the director Paul Verhoeven, um, you rarely, rarely get Schwarzenegger to do a commentary, but Total Recall is one of his favorites, and I think arguably one of his best movies he made. Um, would you agree with that? It certainly got my ass to Mars. Uh, yeah. Um, and your three breasts to boot. Yeah. Uh, so with with all that, you know, Schwarzenegger was paid $77,000. 
to do the audio commentary. And when that news came out, you saw a lot of editorials from DVD production companies saying, like, we'll never be able to afford to make a DVD again. And Schwarzenegger said, well, I just charged that much so I could um, donate the money to this charity. Did he donate the money to that charity? Uh, I don't know if people followed that to its conclusion. That'd be That's oh, a great did. question. I would hope so. I, I admire the man. But, um, but anyhow, that's getting a bit off topic. Uh, but yeah, but, Harlan... But- on. On, on, on you know the subject of Harlan Ellison paying the writer, that is that is something that he had said on one of the Sci-Fi Buzz commentaries that I ended up taking to heart when I started uh, when I started doing freelance writing professionally, and that is if you're if you're writing something that someone else is going to publish, you don't put pen to paper until the contract is signed. That is a pretty useful guideline. It is, and especially, I'm sure it was true in, in his days doing short stories and, and writing and stuff, but now more than ever, uh, internet publications in particular expect you to do things for free for the exposure. Uh, exposure only does one thing, and that's kill, and it only kills two things, inexperienced hikers and inexperienced writers. And it also goes and uh, it cheapens the market for everyone else, which was a lesson it took me a long time to learn. And sometimes you have to kind of eat it on your first few jobs, right? You're not going to be making a, a million bucks out the out the uh, right away. But you should be compensated, even if it's, um, you know, I have some clients that I do some work for that I might only get paid something like, uh, you know, like $25 a pop to do something for them. And I do it because I like the work I'm doing for them. And, but also because like I get paid for it, even though that's a small amount, that it's more than nothing. I think speaks volumes. Yeah, I mean, you, you need to make sure that you are getting something tangible. I mean, I I did an illustration for publication in exchange for free drinks all night at a bar once. Uh, just make sure it doesn't have to be money you're getting, but it does need to be something physical, concrete, and something that you can measure. Exactly. Um, and also another tip for your, any novice writers out there, before you sign the contract, feel free to go back and forth about the money if that's something, but also pay attention to when it says you're supposed to be paid. Oh, yeah. Because um, whether it's on purpose or not, you'll run into situations where you expect that check to come and uh, it's not coming. And if you need that check to make rent, or even if you don't, it's the principle of the thing, right? Yeah, you, need, you there needs to be a, a some sort of date attached, and one thing to to keep an eye out for is you know, uh, so, something to really watch out for is stuff where you get where you're paid at the time of publication. Yeah, uh, I have had to wait a full year to get paid for something once. Yeah, me too. It's not um, it's not ideal by any means. Um, so. But I think Carlin would have approved us making that tangent about uh, for the writer. But yeah. But anyway, I had learned about him in this article talking about his uh, his computer game, and um, unfortunately, the computer game I have no mouth, I'm a scream. At least where I lived at the time in uh, Georgia, didn't really get good distribution, and I didn't know about Amazon.com at the time. So like, I could never find the game in stores. I don't think Amazon.com had had started when that came. Yeah, out. Yeah, it probably had not started when it had come out. So um, yeah, the I have no mouth on I must scream game didn't come out till 1995. That's that's a few years before Amazon. I think you're right, and um, so 
you know, I have only been able to play bits and pieces of that game recently when, it, when uh, the great website Good Old Games at GOG, G-O-G dot com, uh, released the game, and uh, GOG is a great platform where you can have games available for uh, PC. Uh, they do some ports for Mac, but not very many, um, although they're improving with that. And you can play these old games optimized to work on modern computers, and, and one of them they have on there is... Uh, Harlan's game, I Have No Mouth, I Must Scream, which is a uh, adventure game sort of in the style of a, of a King's Quest or a Monkey Island, uh, but of course with a much darker tone and greatly expanding upon the material of his, uh, perhaps one of his most famous works, his short story, I Have No Mouth, I Must Scream. Yeah, I, I, I did, I was lucky enough to get this game when it came out and played it from beginning to end, and managed to get several of the endings that's that's one of the things that is that, that tells you how much the video game industry has changed but i have no mouth and i must scream had multiple endings you're never told this it right. never came up in interviews so far as i know it's not mentioned on the game it's not it wasn't mentioned in the handful of print ads that ran it is something that takes you completely by surprise and because of the way those multiple endings work, you really have to think about this game's moral dimensions to get the, I don't want to say optimal, but least bad ending. <laughs> Which is something I, I wish more video games did. I, there, there's a great interview with, with, uh, with Harlan Ellison talking about his experience working with the lead game designer. And his big thing was, this is not going to, this is, this is not going to be a game where you win. This is going to be about a game mm. where you lose gloriously. Yeah. And that's something that I really, really take to heart. I love the idea of losing gloriously and how that can be that can be part of such a worthwhile story or experience. Yeah, one of my friends uh, on Twitter, he, does, he runs the DOS Nostalgic uh, account. Um, a lot of, you know, stuff with old computer, DOS specifically computer games, uh, old PC games, really. And he was mentioning... Uh, he found great vintage clips of Harlan Ellison uh, complaining about video games in the way only Harlan can, and he said he was playing uh, Wolfenstein 3D, which he pronounced as Wolfenstein, and he says, this is a product of a of a deranged mind. You run around shooting Nazis, and like, how can people, it might be fun for five minutes, how can people play these things for years? It And it was, um, you know, cantankerous and mean, and but also like not not unfair he has Harlan has a strong point of view and he uh, he, he really sticks to his guns uh, some of the work of his I read um, oh, I don't know maybe 10 years ago when they became available on uh, on Kindle was uh, some of his nonfiction um, criticism uh, he had a two there was a two volume reissue of the glass teat which is criticism of um, I think like 1960s and 1970s television and also there was, um, I think it's, it's called like the Horn Book or, or something, but there was uh, some compilations of um, his, his criticism of film that some of them might have originated in Starlog magazine. Uh, actually, I, I think I've got that. It's called uh, Harlan Ellison's Watching. Watching, thank you, yeah. And in fact, there's a new version that I want to get that's only in hardcover that's right now, you know, the all, of course, one of Harlan's works or or going through the roof, right? They're worth a lot more because he just died, so I'll have to wait for the new version of that to uh, drop in price, because it's I guess it takes his whatever publication, it might have been a newspaper of him 
continuing to write about film up until recent years and sort of as a sequel to that. But yeah, what do you think about his uh, his criticism? Overall, I, I, I find his criticism pretty insightful. Sometimes it can get a little bit too florid. Uh, and yes. a little bit yeah. too ranty. Sometimes I think he does sort of lose lose his target somewhere along the lines. But overall, I do enjoy it. Although it, although it is it is kind of interesting to see the the reviews that kind of do hold up and don't hold up. Like he's got a uh, he's got a. Uh, an essay called Luke Skywalker is a nerd and Darth Vader sucks runny <laughs> eggs. And it really yes. kind of, it, it really kind of drives home one of the innate contradictions of Harlan Ellison's character is that Harlan Ellison growing up was a tremendous fan of science fiction. And I've often heard him extol the virtues of the old, uh, the old Flash Gordon uh, and Buck Rogers adventure serials and, and old, old pulp comics like the Phantom uh, and that when it comes down to it, Star Wars is a celebration of all that. It, it feels like a movie that he should agree with in principle, but he absolutely hates Star Wars. Well, and sometimes he would champion science fiction films that, that others uh, didn't really like. I'm thinking in particular, um, you go on YouTube, there's a, a I think a BBC documentary about the uh, infamous uh, feature film of Dune, directed by David Lynch, and Harlan Ellison is a fan of that picture, and and goes into um, what he likes about it, especially Lynch's oddball take on the the bad guy Harkin and stuff. Uh, the the book I was I was looking for the new one that I need to pick up is Harlan Ellison's Endlessly Watching, a, a follow up to Watching. Um, also in his book Watching, he makes a point of uh, of course this was written at the time when this film came out, but. He was uh, singing the praises of a Star Trek film a lot of people aren't crazy about, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, saying it's the one that's most reminiscent of the TV show. And he's not wrong on that count. Uh, yeah, I, I can see that. And I'm, I'm, part of me actually wonders how much of that is sort of born out of his friendship uh, with Leonard Nimoy. That's just his friendship with Leonard Nimoy, but we kind of buried the lead here. I, I would argue the work of, that Hardin Ellison has done that the most people have seen is his highly modified script for a season one episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. It's often considered the best episode of the series, perhaps of all time, City on the Edge of Forever. Oh, and that, that, that is, it is often, often cited as like the, the greatest episode of classic Star Trek. Uh, and, and it, it is, it is worthy of, of high praise. But uh, the original teleplay and the second draft of the original teleplay that Ellison wrote was published uh, in a published in a book by it was either Borealis or Art House, which was which was a fiction imprint of the White Wolf Game Studio, what? which gives it a really interesting pedigree. Okay. Yeah, that that was yeah. There, there, when 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 White Wolf had really hit its stride in the nineties. Uh, I think it was like Bill Bill Bridges and one of its other founders really decided. Well, every other successful game publisher has a fiction imprint, but let's not do shitty fiction. Let's really try to do good stuff. So they they published a collection of commissioned uh, Elric stories. But one of the things they published mm. was Harlan Ellison's original teleplay for the City on the Edge of Forever, full of behind the scenes photos and production notes and multiple intro multiple introductions by Ellison. Because apparently there was a small press version published in like the seventies, and it really is fascinating to see the where the story changed from Ellison's original conception to what made it to the air. 
and one of the fascinating so it, it, for the, you know for those of you who don't know um the enterprise is investigating the ruins of this lost civilization on this planet and the one piece of working technology is this time machine called the guardian of forever and bones mccoy whacked waxed out on some crazy space drug falls through the time vortex and ends up changing the past causing the causing uh, the Enterprise to never be built, and so Spock and Kirk have to travel into the past and prevent him from making whatever the alteration to history is. And it turns out what the alteration to history is, is there's this woman who runs a soup kitchen who gives these sort of speeches for, for socialist and pacifist causes, and it turns out what ends up changing in the past is she is supposed to die uh, before World War Two, because I think they're they're in America in the Great Depression, and because she lives, she ends up becoming an advisor to a future president of the United States and keeps the United States from entering World War Two, and so the Nazis take over the world, and then the world ends. So, in order to make a better future happen, they have to make sure this woman dies, uh, right? And and it ends up coming out of their hands because when they rescue Bone, she ends up getting hit by a car. Uh, so the timeline is restored. Uh, and this is the version that aired. The version that Ellison originally wrote before Gene Roddenberry notoriously did the heavy rewrite on it um, has two main things. One, it has Spock and Kirk really legitimately grapple, grappling with the morality about whether they're going to have to kill this woman so that their present can still exist. But the other thing it gets into is it does... So oftentimes, uh, Trek, Star Trek and early seasons of Star Trek The Next Generation are criticized for being too utopian. Um, mm. The original teleplay is a criticism of Star Trek's utopia. Uh, because it, it, it does seem weird that Bones would accidentally overdose on a painkiller and go jumping through a time vortex. So in the original version, there is a crewman on the Enterprise. Uh, he's a Starfleet engineer who is using the fact that the Enterprise visits multiple planets. He's essentially smuggling. He's like selling drugs and high-tech weapons to different civilizations they meet along the way. Sure. He's amassing this small fortune because, you know, unlike everyone else in the Enterprise, he's hanging on to this notion that he wants to be rich, uh, and so he's kind of he's he's turning against that post-capitalist thing that that Star Trek has. And his whole thing is he gets caught smuggling, and he is, tries to escape through the vortex, figuring the past will be the only place that he'll never be found. And one of the other key differences, this isn't present in the original teleplay, but in the second draft, Gene Roddenberry insisted on more action. So in the second draft, um, Starfleet does exist, but it's a confederation of pirates. So in the second draft of the teleplay, there's this subplot where the rest of the Enterprise crew is trapped on an evil version of the Enterprise called the Condor that is run by a gang of bloodthirsty pirates who are raiding other civilizations for their resources. That seems a bit much. I mean, it's it it certainly injects some action into the story, but it is also completely unnecessary. Yeah. Uh, also brings to mind Mirror Mirror, which I think didn't you know was a later episode, of course. Yeah, that was like season two. Season I think. two, yeah. Um, 
Another but, very influential uh, one. But, yeah. We talk about playing the the paying the writer, but the guardian of forever, this intelligent time machine from this episode, that that is a character. Uh, and Harlan Ellison received received character payments whenever the guardian of forever showed up in other Star Trek media, which is one of the reasons why it never showed up in the movies. Uh, hmm. Essentially, anytime you've seen a Star Trek movie where there's time travel, at some point there's a draft of the script where someone's like, well, why don't they just use the Guardian of Forever to travel through time? And supposedly no one wants to deal with Harlan Ellison and his lawyers. Yeah, which uh, brings us to another point. Harlan Ellison was uh, infamously litigious. Um, Oh, yeah. And one of the more famous examples, I mean, you mentioned Star Trek, which is a big one, but James Cameron um, franchise-launching film The Terminator was... In, in some interviews with Starlog, James Cameron said, oh, this is based off some episodes of uh, Twilight Zone that Harlan Ellison did. Or it might have been Outer, was, no, uh, the outer, outer Limits. Limits. I'm sorry, specific, I always get those confused. Yeah, specifically the episodes uh, Soldier and Demon with a Glass Hand. Yep. And um, Harlan Ellison took James Cameron to court, took the studio to court, and won, which is a really difficult thing to do when you're going against a film studio. And because of that, on all the um, video releases of Terminator, it says, like, the Terminator is acknowledges the work of, uh, is inspired by works of Harlan Ellison. And you know what's funny is that that lawsuit has had further fallout. So there is a, there is a mockbuster knockoff of the Terminator franchise called Terminators. Because, okay. Because... The word Terminator is in the public domain. I mean, it's it's like an yes. actual job title. So there's a movie called Terminators that is about, you know, time-traveling robots killing people, but in a really shitty kind of we're-trying-to-be-aliens sort of way. And the description of that movie acknowledges Harlan Ellison and says, not, and says it specifically says, not inspired by, the, by James Cameron or the works of Harlan Ellison oh, on the geez. video description. Sure, that's that's pretty funny. And and supposedly, um, there would have never have been a lawsuit if James Cameron hadn't specifically mentioned those two episodes on an interview, a cable interview he gave uh, after uh, after Terminator came out. Yep, and they were able to use that as uh, as evidence in court. Um, but uh, have you ever seen Soldier or Demon with a Glass Hand? I have seen Soldier, and frankly, I find the link to Terminator pretty tenuous. Well, th- this kind of goes into... We could do a whole episode about James Cameron, but so, so something about James Cameron, if you do read a lot of science fiction, um, he loves lifting things. I'm not going to say plagiarizing, but if you ever, like... If you watch any of his movies and really and really dig into them, most of his movies are sort of made out of bits and pieces of sci-fi novels and TV shows from 20 years before. Right. And, um, and so you can kind of see like, so like with soldier, Oh yeah. Uh, time traveling warriors from the future. Okay. Demon with the glass hand person who's supposed to save human civilization. Um, like you can see, I can see the DNA. I can see the, the bits of connection, even though Terminator is its own thing. But the same thing goes for Avatar. Avatar bears a lot of resemblance to the Ben Bova novel, The Winds of Altair. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, Avatar, I think, in a way, it's Cameron cannibalizing himself. Because when, when he did the, uh, the second <laughs> Alien movie, Aliens, 
he did such a good job of just using a lot of different uh, army man tropes and creating a team that Avatar kind of uses a lot of those same um, character types in having the group of heroes towards the end of the film, whether especially with Michelle Rodriguez's sort of tough-as-nail uh, soldier. It's a bit like Vasquez and Alien, I thought. Um, aliens, excuse me. And, and we look over Harlan Ellison's work, and he's done some novellas, but mainly short stories is what he's known for, but he's also written a lot of screenplays that never got made that he would later publish, uh, screenplays and teleplays, and all these things. And we mentioned some of the nonfiction. I'm also looking, uh, I think a, a week or two ago, Thrasher uh, off mic, we were discussing, he had, um, Harlan Ellison had edited a three-volume short story uh, collection, the third of which has not come out for decades. Yeah, it was uh, Dangerous Visions, uh, again, Dangerous Visions, and I think the final one was going to be called At Last Dangerous Visions or The Last Dangerous Visions. And yeah, Volume 3 has been, quote-unquote, in production for 30 years. Do you think we'll ever see that? I think I think we're going to see it now, but not the way Ellison intended. So so the the last Dangerous Visions has been in production for so long that several authors uh, pulled their submissions out of it to publish them elsewhere because they got they were worried that they would never see the light of day otherwise. So I think what's going to happen is now that Ellison's dead. Um, I suspect some enterprising publisher is going to publish it by reaching out to the various authors who have contributed it to contribute to it over the past 30 years and kind of, I guess, assess, lack of a better term, cobble it together, uh, whether whether using some of the submissions that were still extant or submissions that ended up being published elsewhere. They're going to be collected into one volume and it'll probably be done as a tribute to Harlan Ellison. But have you ever read uh, either of the Dangerous Visions? I have not, no. Um, but as I understand, the purpose behind them was to allow a uncensored uh, venue for science fiction authors to write whatever they wanted. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the idea they wanted they wanted the work to be sort of rough, sharp, challenging, but that also they weren't going to shy away from sex and violence. Nothing was going to be bodlerized. Uh, and, and the authors were going to be given a lot of uh, control. The other thing that really makes it stand out is that traditionally uh, anthologies, the tradition with anthologies is that they are typically made up of works that have already been published elsewhere. They might contain one or two things, maybe an essay or a short story that is specifically commissioned for the book to give it some fresh content. But part of the goal with Dangerous Visions was all the authors are getting paid. All the stories are going to be commissioned for this publication. And also, the authors are going to be paid well and paid in advance. At least for the first one, they were paid uh, in advance after being commissioned. I'm not sure if that held out for the second one. I know it certainly didn't hold out for the third one. Um, but overall, like I've, I've read the first one. I need, to, I need to track down a copy of the second one. Overall, it's it's very good, and I do like the way that it sort of unblinkingly deals with a lot of a lot of really tender subjects. Yeah, no, I've been meaning to check those out. I really need to check those out now that you've uh, for that cool description. Um, when Thornton Ellison died, on uh, I'm fairly active on, on Twitter, and a lot of my uh, 
followers and, and people were um, talking about Hernan Ellison. And one thing popped up, it was an incident I was not aware of. Um, and it's unfortunate. Oh, are you right, talking uh, with Connie are you Willis? Are talking about the, the Connie Willis, the 2006 yes. uh, Hugo Awards? Um, yeah, I think that's worth mentioning. No, no, it is. And, and so, like, Har- Harlan Ellison... I think Harlan Ellison thinks of himself as, like, a lovable scamp, uh, <laughs> science fiction's dirty grandpa. Yeah. And most of the time, that's fine, but in the case of, of, of Connie Willis, it, it was an incident of, of Harlan Ellison's personality going way too far. Um, Harlan Ellison and Connie Willis, Connie Willis being a science fiction author, a novelist, uh, actually, I've, I've actually... I brought up her Wikipedia page specifically. Uh, she she wrote the novels The Doomsday Book, To Say Nothing of the Dog, Blackout mm. All Clear, uh, has won a lot of Hugo and Nebula Awards. Anyway, in the 2006 Hugo Awards, uh, she and Harlan Ellison were presenting one of the awards, and they're doing some onstage banter. And, and you know, Harlan Ellison said something off... I think there's video of this. I have not seen there it. There is. Uh, but Harlan Ellison said something off-color... And she said something to him along the lines of, you're behaving like a child or you're behaving like an infant. And his response was to go, wah, wah, like a baby. And, like, he reached over and, and, and like, tweaked her breast. And that's pretty fucked up. It is. And I th- and it's, it's, one, it's one of those things where there's probably a whole generation of science fiction authors uh, who are going to remember Harlan Ellison for that and not for his contribu- contributions to the medium. But that is Harlan Ellison's fault. He did that. He did, and he later wrote an apology, but of course an apology didn't stop him from doing it in the first place, right? And that's... True, that, true. That you shouldn't do that kind of uh, um, sexual assault, period, even, especially on a, I mean, on a stage is terrible, but you shouldn't do that, period, I, in my view, and it's... Uh, and also, it it, uh, it started an interesting conversation online where people talk about similar um, things from other famous science fiction Authors, and uh, this isn't excusing it, but maybe it's sort of a, a generational thing of where people thought they could get away with more, and it was okay, and they're just they thought of it as a goof, and it's really something more heinous. Uh, Isaac Asimov writes about how much he enjoyed squeezing women's breasts when they would uh, ask for signatures at conventions. Um, oh yeah, I, I I have heard about that. Yeah. So it's um, it's worth mentioning the videos online if you wanna if you wanna read it um, or not read it if you wanna see it. Um, before I get into my Harlan Ellison story, uh, one other thing that was uh, jumping out to me here: um, what Harlan Ellison considers his his best work uh, is something you mentioned earlier. It was made into a film. It's the novella A Boy and His Dog. Oh yes, which is, which is sort it's it's sort of it's a deconstruction of post-apocalyptic science fiction written in a time before post-apocalyptic science fiction had finished gelling or needed any deconstruction. And um, to honor his his death, uh, the the great new podcast I think I mentioned it on here before. It's called Shoutcast from uh, our friends at Shout Factory. Uh, it contains the full, uncut interview between Harlan Ellison and the director of the uh, film, A Boy and His Dog, L.Q. Jones, and they talk for 90 minutes, rambling about it. Um, and Harlan Ellison was mostly happy with the movie A Boy and His Dog, except for the final line of dialogue. 
Uh, and, and both the film and, and the book have inspired a lot of post-apocalyptic work. Uh, Ellison mentions after um, The Road Warrior came out, George Miller sent a letter to Harlan Ellison, sort of acknowledging Ellison's influence, which Ellison was happy about. Well, you, you can particularly see Ellison's influence on Fury Road. How so? Well, that, that essentially, what one of the big things in A Boy and His Dog is that the culture, the post-apocalyptic culture exists as a weird cobbled together echo of mid-20th century uh, culture. And there's a lot of that in Fury Road, I think more so than in a lot of the previous Mad Max films. Like, like particularly, like you, this is, um, oh, what, what is it? Um, the, not Furious, the, the big, oh, and Morton Joe, a Morton Joe civilization. Mm. That's the post, that's a post-apocalyptic civilization built by somebody who played a lot of video games, read a lot of comic books and watched a lot of bad movies. Yeah. I can see that. Um, oddly enough, uh, Ellison's last published work in his lifetime was, I, I was surprised to learn this, but also pleased, it's called Blood's a Rover, which is not not a novel, really, but sort of a compilation of the A Boy and His Dog novella, um, two short stories previously published that have bookended that work called Ed Sucker and Run Spot Run, and an unproduced teleplay for A Boy and His Dog pilot series in which the dog has a uh, female master. Interesting. Yeah, it's funny. Like Harlan Ellison was, for a time, a very prolific television writer, writing for all sorts of genres, infamously The Flying Nun, the Sally Field sitcom, about, just as <laughs> it says, a nun who flies. But... One of the things I think we need to talk to, he's got a lot of, his career has, I guess, a lot of glorious failures. Uh, I think we need to talk about The Star Lost. Have you ever seen or heard of this? I have heard he wrote several um, essays, I guess, about how this failed to take off. And it was him creating a science fiction series, right? But I don't yes, think it was, it was ever made. No, no, it was it was made. The full the oh. whole first season was was done. Um, it was done for it was like produced. It was like a, a Canadian American co production. I think mostly done up in Canada, uh, and it was inspired in part by uh, the Harlan Ellison short story Phoenix Without Ashes. Um, and it's it's a, was supposed to be this big sweeping space opera. Um, and the core the core premise is there's this Amish guy living in this isolated Amish community. Uh, who is going to be who's being tried for heresy and is going to be executed and in the course of trying to escape from you know the little you know country jail he ends up discovering that his whole you know Amish community is in fact it's all contained inside a sealed dome and that dome is part of a spaceship uh, and that all throughout that spaceship are these isolated environments where humans were being preserved for some reason. However, something went wrong and that spaceship is off course and is going to crash into the sun of another solar system. And so this is a person who has sort of no conception of, of science or, or industry or technology. 
And so he takes it upon himself to navigate the corridors of this starship to hopefully find somebody who knows how to make spaceships work so he can save what may very well be the last of humanity uh, in the solar system. Now, that's a pretty grand design. The show itself is very, very cheap and very, very 70s in the worst way. Mm. And the thing, it's and it's one, it's one of those. I've watched several episodes, and it's one of those frustrating things where all of the concepts of the show are brilliant, and everyone is trying to do the absolute best with what they have, but they have nothing to work with. That's too bad. And and the attempt to save money by doing a lot of special effects and backgrounds with chroma key really really date the show. Uh, and Harlan Ellison had a really bad experience trying to make this TV series. Which is one of the one of, so one of the quirks of Harlan Ellison is if he didn't like the end result, uh, he would always have it in his contract that he could take his name off of the project and replace replace his credit with the credit Cordwain or Bird, which was his pen name for crap essentially. And so that's why if you watch if you watch uh, any episodes of the Star Lost, and I think most of it's on YouTube because nobody cares, um, they're all credited as created by Cordwain or Bird. It did get an official DVD release, which was somewhat surprising. Um, but yeah, so also looking, he also wrote um, for various comics over the years. He did oh, a, yeah. uh, I recall an issue of Daredevil. He did um, all, all sorts of different stuff you can track down. I don't know if they have any good compilations with just the Harlan Ellison stuff. Um, maybe he, that's something we'll get in the future. He he loved comic books. Actually, there's a really great uh, documentary that he hosts uh, about comic books. Let me see if I can find the... Uh... Oh, crap. Let me see if I can find the... Oh, I think it is The Masters of Comic Book Art. Um hmm. And and it's really it really is about the history of American comics. It p- concentrates primarily on on DC and Marvel, um, and he, you really see his enthusiasm. And he really talks about being an old school comic book geek. Although one of the things that's fascinating is that clearly everything was filmed in order. He gets more tired throughout the documentary. Like when it starts, he's standing up and he rips open his shirt like Superman yeah. to reveal a Spider-Man T-shirt, and he's really enthusiastic. And by the end, he's laying down on a couch and saying, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah, Steve Git- Ditko was great, but also an asshole." Roll the clip. Jeez, <laughs> you can really yeah. follow his arc. Yep. Yeah, um, well, good. I think you know that's a good sort of big overview of Harlan Ellison. Any last things you want to say before you well, get into two, my story? Two things. Um, so yes. Harlan Ellison, we talked about, you know, how he's... Harlan Ellison has a lot of sort of, I, I guess not lost, but a lot of like unproduced TV and film stuff. And this is in part because of his policy of he will not write what... He will not write for you until the contract is signed. And so there's two... There's two things I want to talk about. Two kind of apocryphal works. Uh, one... Uh, Harlan Ellison almost wrote an episode of Adam West's Batman, the Batman 66 series. Hmm. Um, he he wrote a teleplay for a Two-Face episode. Oh, that's he right. Really liked, he really liked Two-Face and wanted to bring Two-Face into the Batman show, which he was apparently a fan of. Um, unfortunately, they it, it he was not commissioned to write the full script. However, a few years ago... Uh, when DC Comics launched its Batman 66 comic book, which is really, really fun, um, they did a special edition 
comic book adaptation of Ellison's teleplay, uh, The Two-Way Crimes of Two-Face. I, I got a copy of it a while ago. I, I read it this weekend after the uh, the news of, of Harlan Ellison's passing. Damn, it would have made a good episode. And also, and it's it's a- like, it fits. It just fits perfectly within that 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 you know Batman sixty six milieu. Uh, and one one thing I love I love about it is it really plays with two with Two Face's coin, and Two Face's crime spree is he when he starts to commit a crime he flips a coin and the coin determines whether he does something evil or does something good. And so, like, the very first crime he commits, he steals a nearly complete set of Ming Dynasty China, but then he flips the coin and it comes up good. So he returns all the stolen China plus the piece that completes the set, thus making it more <laughs> valuable. <laughs> and so the whole the whole story is, like, him, like, alternating between doing good and evil things, and it eventually ends in a showdown between Batman and Two-Face in a pirate ship. It's so camp and glorious. Yeah, where but I thought, thing I wanted to talk where I thought about, you were going with that is um, Warner... Brothers uh, released direct-to-video a, a cartoon in the style of those Batman 66 comics called Batman vs. Two-Face. Oh, yeah. But it sounds like that was not based on the Harlan Ellison uh, teleplay. But they I had, don't think so, but I haven't seen that movie yet. Yeah, and they had Adam West and Burt Ward and uh, Julie Newmar reprising their role, and as Two-Face they have William Shatner. Which is fucking perfect. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's what they would have done at the time. The cover for the two-way crimes of Two-Face implies that Humphrey Bogart would have played Two-Face, but I think that's just a flair they did for the cover. The the Two-Face doesn't look like anyone in particular inside the, the comic book adaptation. But the other thing I want to talk about, um, so I love Sid Marty Croft shows, particularly Land of the Lost, which we could do a whole episode on to begin with. But the script editor for Land of the Lost was the writer for the classic Star Trek episode, The Trouble with Tribbles, and he was really good friends with Harlan Ellison. And they talk about this on the season one DVDs for Land of the Lost, was that he was having a barbecue at Harlan Ellison's house and they were talking and he was telling Ellison, oh, I'm working on this weird sci-fi story where there's lizard men and, and time travel. And Harlan Ellison was really getting into it because he, like, he, again, he loves, like, classic pulp stuff and Land of the Lost seemed right up his alley. So Ellison started pitching his own, his own Land of the Lost story. And the, the script editor was like, well, Harl- Harlan, that's brilliant, but I can't just commission an episode the way we're doing the series is we have to have the episodes written before we buy them. And Ellison's like, well, I'm not going to finish writing this script unless I get it commissioned. So somewhere in Ellison's archives are the first two acts of an incomplete Land of the Lost script. Mm. I wish I knew what was in that script because the, the, the guy in the interview does not say... But I, I, like, think of what we missed out on. What could that episode have been? And he does... And he does say in the interview that may very well be the best episode of Land of the Lost that was never made. Well, um, yeah, looking over Harley Ellison stuff, he did a lot of audiobooks, some of which were of his own material, some of other people's material. And what I found really fascinating that I've never heard about, maybe I'll wait for a, a box set of this to come out, is starting in 83 and kind of doing it um, sort of uh, on and off, Throughout the years from 2004 until 2012, there is a, a six-volume 
piece called Harlan Ellison on the Road with Ellison. And it's just him doing uh, doing his, his sort of rants about different topics. Huh. And, like, Volume 5 is him doing his last convention appearance at MadCon in 2010. Volume 6 is um, includes his 2005 Grandmaster Awards acceptance speech and has, you know, I mean, you look at the name of these uh, track titles. I babysat Peter David's nine-year-old daughter. What decade is this? Serial killers are just donuts. A lot of uh, a lot of random things in there. So, and an in memoriam for Octavia E. Butler. So, those could be cool to check out. These different um, compilations of Harlan Ellison. And in the past few years, he had a stroke, which was unfortunate. And the last story he wrote before the stroke took away his ability to write physically is because um, mentally, as I understand, he was still there. Is when he learned that finally they were going to do a big compilation of all the Boy and His Dog stuff. He says, I'm going to add a new Boy and His Dog short story in that universe. And he started writing the story, and then he had a stroke. Hmm. So, but in a way, that's um, that's fitting, because he considered that his best work and the, his last published work during his lifetime. In fact, just came out just a few weeks ago, was that um, Blood Rover uh, collection. Yeah, I would... I would love to, to listen to some of his audiobook stuff. I know he did the audiobook for Ben Bova's Mars, which is one of my absolute Ooh, favorite yeah. sci-fi novels. It is well worth checking out. The Mars sequels are also good uh, to read as well, although although I don't feel like they hit any of them hit the height of the first novel. They certainly don't don't waste your time. He also did, I think it was uh, Alice's Adventures Through the Looking Glass. That that'd be fascinating. He also did, I mean, wow, there's there's some real classics on here. He did The Wizard of Earthsea. Um, yeah. And he did uh, Ender's Game. Wow, that's that's really something. So, or the Human by Theodore Sturgeon. Yeah, I guess my last my last thought on this is just going to be if you want if you want to see something fun that Ellison did recently. So, in the Glass Teat, one of my favorite essays in there is he has an essay that sings the praises of Saturday morning cartoons, which I mm. really do. I really do like that essay. I find it really really touching. So, in the uh, early 2010s there's a TV show called Scooby-Doo Mysteries Incorporated which is the grand unified field theory of Scooby-Doo and Hanna-Barbera in general it is well worth your time it's like Scooby-Doo by the way of David Lynch but in the best possible way Harlan Ellison plays himself on two episodes, uh, Come Undone and The Shrieking Madness and The Shrieking Madness also feels features Jeffrey Combs um Check check those out. Those are very fun episodes, and like they draw Harlan Ellison the way he looked in the seventies, <laughs> but it's Ellison, yeah, like now. And now he he clearly is having a great time being on Scooby Doo, a show that he talked about liking back in the day. Um, and also he showed up on The Simpsons apparently, but I completely missed that episode. It was a later day episode. It was a more recent episode, um, but yeah, it sounds like a fun gag on there. Uh, also, there was a good documentary in 2007 called Dreams with Sharp Teeth. Mm. Named after the short story collection of the same name. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, a lot of great... Uh, a lifetime, really, of um, Harlan Ellison material out there. And uh, a, a, a good place to start... I wish I still had my copy, but I don't. Is, uh, in 2001, there was The Essential Ellison, a 50-year retrospective. That contains a lot of his shorts. But you can pick any of his short story collections, really, and, and find some things. 
there. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's get to it with my infamous, um, I say infamous, but really only a few people know about it, story about Harlan Ellison. And as I recount this story, uh, Thrasher, feel free to interrupt and ask me questions. Maybe I can oh, jog my memory certainly. and have some more things. So this was, I believe, at, at Dragon Con in um, 2004, maybe 2005. Yep, uh, that was it. Was it was two thousand four? I remember because I, I went with you to Dragon Con that year. Yes, that's right. And you had, you had to stay at my uh, my house because you had vertigo from the wacky hotel it was in. Well, it, it was a combination of that and like you know what? I don't think I want to chip into the hotel. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, that makes more sense. Yeah, pr- price was also a factor, but yeah, sure. that hotel did give me such a severe attack of vertigo, I didn't feel like I could ride up and down that elevator twice a day. Yeah, um, it's it's a weird one, that's for sure. So, uh, to start things off, I I went to a Harden Ellison panel, uh, because I, I did want to see the man do a shtick live, and I'm very glad I did, but also a friend of mine was uh, kind of the MC at the panel, and my friend was... I say friend, it's more like, I used to work with him, so I, I guess I can say friend. It's the author James A. Moore, who, um, he has written a lot of fiction, kind of sort of the horror, suspense genre. Um, some of his more well-known works might be, he's done some um, franchise things, like he did a Buffy the Vampire Slayer Chaos Bleeds book based off the Xbox game in 2003. He did a. Uh, he contributed to a recent collection of alien short stories that came out to promote the Alien Covenant movie. And, um, but he, he got to start writing uh, novels for um, the Vampire, the the Masquerade, and the Werewolf stuff for White Wolf. Cool. So, anyhow, that's neither here nor there. My friend was doing a panel, and Harlan Ellison was there, and I said, "Oh, I got to get my butt to this." And uh, the way I dressed myself for this convention was I thought I was being clever, but uh, as often happens in my life, I'm just being an asshole and don't realize it. I had a plain white t-shirt, had a Sharpie, I wrote Chun-Li rocks on it and sort of pedophile lettering and and put it on. And uh, I had a few people actually enjoy that costume and give me high fives and like it. And uh, I, dumb old me goes, uh, goes to this really hard to find room in Dragon Con. If you've never been to Dragon Con, it's the biggest science fiction convention in the Southeast. Uh, I believe I'm not misspeaking there, but it, it takes over two hotels and some of the uh, the rooms the panels are at, let's say, are a bit of a hike and difficult to get to. So so I'm there, I get a good seat uh, right up front because I get there way too early and brought a book with me to read and stuff to kill time and because that's what I tend to do. And uh, we're there waiting, and I say hi to my friend James. Uh, as it's going on, the panel starts 15 minutes late, because Harlan Ellison is late. And he walks in, he's in a bad mood. Of course, it could just be Harlan being Harlan. He just goes, where the hell is this room? They didn't give me a map, I had to walk well, he always seems five like million miles. No matter what he's doing. Yes, yeah. And so he was, you know, sort of grumbling to himself, and his sort of, uh, reminds me of Popeye in a way, the sort of, rah, 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 rah. you know, he's, I was like, oh, these Meshuganists told me to go this all, all this way. I'm just walking all the way through, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and these authors talk about their experience writing books. They take uh, Q&As from the audience. And Harlan Ellison is going on a rant. Uh, uh, these, these, these kids today, you know, they're, they're so dumb. It makes you wonder how they can put the pants on in the morning. They, they go, they walk. I, I don't know why my Harlan Ellison sounds like Shecky Spielboy, but uh, bear with me. Sorry, Shecky. 
And so, so Harlan's like, oh, we, we go and uh, these kids, they don't know anything today. Uh, you, you. And uh, he points a finger towards me. I, I sort of freeze. I don't know. And uh, I, I point to myself, sort of going, huh? You know. And he goes, yes, yes, you, you, you. Do you know what the, what's the Lusitania? And at this point, this was uh, 2005. I had not taken a history class in six or seven, probably seven years at that point. I was not up in my World War II knowledge. Lusitania sounded familiar, but I couldn't place where it was. And uh, half a second passed, and Ellison cut off my silence and said, See? My point exactly. And the, there is a... Uh, and people laughed, and uh, I laughed too. In fact, I, I see it's sort of an honor, really, to be insulted by Ellison. And... Uh, this woman, I didn't know who was next to me, an older woman, put her hand on my shoulder, uh, motherly, and said, There, there, it's okay, child. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's my Harlan Ellison story in all its uh, five-minute glory. Oh, God, I, I, part of me would kind of like a, kind of like a, a story like that. Although, do, do you in fact know what the Lusitania was? <laughs> Yes, I had to look it up to freshen my memory, but the Lusitania was a ship, uh, a passenger ship that went from the U.S. to uh, some country in Europe, and it allegedly had um, weapons, was carrying secret weapons cargo. It was sunk by German submarines, and uh, this was considered the, uh, the flashpoint for the U.S. to get involved in World War One. Yep. And I, I talked about, I mentioned my story to uh, uh, an acquaintance of mine, I've mentioned him on the show before, Flint Dill, he wrote a lot of uh, old G.I. Joe and Transformers episodes, and was a writer on Diablo 3 and so forth, and, uh, and he said, well, Matt, have you ever thought, do you ever thought about what Harlan would have said had you come back with the correct answer? And I said, all the time, and I do. I wonder what he would have said, and it, I, I'd like to think it would have been something like, uh, well, this kid's an exception, but all the other kids. But Maybe I'll never know. Special friends. Hey, you're all right, kid. Oh no, 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 no. That's ridiculous. But yeah, uh, another thing Ellison was a big fan of was Disney, which um, came out in some of his writing. Uh, the film critic Leonard Maltin would often throw these big Disney parties, and Harlan Ellison would be there, and he organized it so Harlan Ellison could meet the man who voiced Jiminy Cricket. And oh, he said wow. it, it was like he said watching Harlan at that time was. Uh, at that party, meeting him was like watching a little boy getting excited. And he said it was hard. You know, Harlan did have a tender side underneath all the the bluff and gruff. Oh god! And I think it's great that he could still go to those parties because Har Harlan Ellison infamously only worked at Disney for one day. He got himself fired. ah yes. <laughs> well, why don't you tell this story and then we'll. Oh, so so he's he's told the story several times. It appears in different versions of it appear in several books. But short of it is, in I think it was the seventies, he um, had gotten a job, a full time job at Walt Disney Studios as a script editor, and you know so he was he was reviewing, he was reading, reviewing, and editing uh, scripts for television. And it's his very first day. You know he's he's finished. Uh, you know he's he's you know read through some some scripts, and he goes to the commissary for lunch. And in the commissary, uh, there's some writers and animators at a table, and he said, well, I ought to get to know these people. They make cartoons I like. So he sits at the table, and they start talking. And this is the, the time in the 70s when porno chic was on the rise. And they're all talking, 
and the conversation shifts to, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could do a legit porno with all Disney characters? And everyone at the table <laughs> is cracking up. But as uh, as the story as the story came to me, by the time it's over, everyone in the commissary is watching the goings on at this one table, and finally Harlan Ellison is standing on top of the table in the commissary, like doing impersonations of Mickey and Goofy <laughs> double teaming Minnie Mouse and like full with gestures and everybody's cracking up and then oh well I guess lunchtime's over I've eaten my fill uh, I, I gotta get back to work so he goes back to his office he goes back to his office <laughs> and waiting on his desk <laughs> is a notice that he's been fired and severance pay <laughs> yes that's yeah that's if that what a note to end on about Harlan Ellison but that, that's him in a nutshell he was fearless um and I, I imagine, just like with the other artists, uh, with a lot of unpublished work, like Michael Jackson or Prince, or I'm sure there's better comparisons I can make, but we'll see Harlan's work far after his death. Well, maybe, maybe not, because one of his oh. essays for Sci-Fi Buzz, he talked about how he's left specific instructions with his wife and his agent that the moment he dies, they are to destroy all of his incomplete uh, manuscripts, anything he's working on at the time, because he did not, he like, he hates the idea of a few years after his death seeing books published that say, you know, blah, 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 written by Harlan Ellison and some motherfucker you've never heard of. He, 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 feels like, he felt yeah. like the, uh, Isaac Asimov's work was tainted by a lot of, you know, quote-unquote posthumous, posthumous uh, collaborations. He did not want that to happen to his own work. I guess that's kind of the opposite of what happened with um, the Wheel of Time author. I, I can't think of that guy's name. Oh, Robert it? Jordan. Robert Jordan, thank you. Who... He was working on the last book, furiously dictating an outline of what was to happen and writing it on his deathbed with the collaborator that he knew would finish it for him. Um, well, I mean, that's something we all, we all got to consider. You know, what's going to happen to our work after we pass? Sure. I have some, uh, <laughs> in retrospect, pretty awful screenplays I wrote when I was in high school that I have locked in a chest at my mother's house. <laughs> and some of which I can't publish because they're based on licensed works, which is, I guess I could call it fan fiction or something. But there you I, go. I've I've got some I've got some stuff like that hidden <laughs> <In a> away. <laughs> I think all writers do. Yeah, it's a what the, the science fiction author Kevin J. Anderson famously set like a a, a world record for the most rejection slips by an author because he kept every one of them oh that's great yeah um all right well let's let's go into what you're watching and then we'll end with a uh sort of a dramatic reading of an excerpt from the i have no mouth i must scream computer game all right well, what I've been watching, going from the world of great art to great trash, uh, I finally saw The Disaster Artist. Oh, yes, yes. What did you think of it? The the film the film based on the book by the same title about the making of Tommy Wiseau's The Room. Okay, overall, I love I loved The Disaster Artist. I mm -hmm. thought it was I found it very entertaining, very engaging. There were a sort of I don't know how fictionalized it is, but there were some like there were some behind the scenes nuggets in there that I was not aware of that I certainly hope are not just the creators taking liberties. Um, 
I, so I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. That being said, I can't imagine what anyone must think of this film if they haven't already seen the seen the room, because every single thing that that Tommy Wiseau does in the movie seems impossible. Not just that, but like it has a lot of um, the more you know about the room and the more times you've watched it. I've only seen it once, but it was uh, quite an intense experience. So I have a pretty good memory of it. Uh, oh yeah. Let's just say I was in under under uh, other substances at the time, which I think helps in getting through it because half <laughs> of it is Tommy so ass shots in slow motion oh, with blue lighting. It's not good at all. No, <laughs> it's not so good. It's bad. It's just. Bad and yet so, good, so bad it's terrible. So bad it's terrible, and yet there's something about Wiseau's performance in, in the movie that makes it work in spite of itself. And I think well, in the Disaster Artist, what what the what this movie about the making of the movie conveys is a it's a bit of a, a love story, I think, between two men, and not not sexual love, but sort of um, a fr- like a deeper friendship. A, a deeper friendship, exactly. And it's uh, I was surprisingly moved by it. I wasn't expecting that. Well, I guess. It, it is true. Like Tommy Wiseau, at least, seems to believe one hundred percent in what he's doing with the film, even if he can't really communicate that. Um, although I really do appreciate the end of the Disaster Artist when they showed real scenes from the room next to their recreations of those scenes. Like that goes a long way to establishing for the audience. No, no, seriously, this movie really happened. Yeah, it should be noted. It was a. Uh... Not just starring, but also directed by James Franco. I, I had a chance to review some of James Franco's films uh, a few years back for Battleship Pretension. And um, his films are really, really small, independent pictures, weird, a lot of avant-garde camera work. And this one is, is shot in a more mainstream way. Um, that said, you know, there's a lot of, appears to be a lot of improvisation with the disaster artist. Um, there is the... Uh, Really, quite a shame, you know. I think it's the Golden Globes or something where James Franco won the the award for best actor, and he brought Tommy Wiseau with him on stage, but he wouldn't let Tommy Wiseau speak. And I wish he had, because uh, certainly whatever Tommy Wiseau would have said would have been complete nonsense. But memorable nonsense. Uh yeah, one way or another. Um, uh, what did you think about the very beginning of the Disaster Artist, where it's celebrities like Kevin Smith talking about what they think of the film? I kind of, I, I kind of didn't like that. It seemed, yeah. it seemed like it, it should have come back later in some way. It, it sort of, it just felt like, it felt like an indulgence. It felt like a DVD bonus feature. Yeah, like the, what they should have done. I loved that scene where in in the disaster where Tommy Wiseau like runs into, um, uh, oh, crud! Who's who's the the director and producer? Does all those comedies? Um, he he worked on the critic. Al G. No, oh, oh, Apatow. Judd yeah, Apatow. Judd Apatow. Where they, he runs into Judd Apatow at a restaurant. Like that was good. That was a good way of using a real person from show business in in this movie in a very believable way. If they had had more things like that, I think appearances by other established actors and directors would have been would have worked. But yeah, Sharon yeah, Stone is in it, right? As the mother. Oh yeah, I think you're right. That's a very blink and you miss a part, but um, and then he has his brother play the part of the the bearded guy. I thought was playing the other lead. I thought was nice, um, because yeah. Dave Franco, James Franco's brother, has a very different style than James Franco. But they they look you can tell they're brothers. They look a lot alike. 
Um, Dave Franco seems to be doing a lot of, tends to do more comedy and stuff. But yeah, no, I really like The Disaster Artist. Um, I would recommend it, but yeah, you need to watch The Room first. I would, what I would love to see is a movie like The Disaster Artist, but about Troll 2. <laughs> now that might be, some of the behind the scenes stuff from that movie, oh yeah. I guess if you're going to see The Room and you don't have any altered substances or like a great crowd to see it with, just watch the Rift Tracks live version of The Room. That's pretty funny. I haven't seen that, but I bet that'd be good. It's quite good. I've been in a... I'm often in a retro gaming mood, but I wanted a break from this this writing I've been doing for this nonfiction book, of of which I can't reveal the topic yet. Tease, tease, tease. Uh, But I I wanted to play an old computer game, kind of take my mind off things. And so last night I spun up my copy of Real Mist Masterpiece Edition. Huh. And, And are you familiar with the computer game Mist? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I played. I've played Mist. I beat Mist, and I think I played part of Riven, the sequel to Mist. Yeah. Well, you know, just we recently, within the past few weeks, uh, GOG has made all five. Well, no, I guess six Mist games available. Um, they've been unavailable digitally for years. Although I think you need Windows to to play some of them on. But Real Mist was kind of a misguided attempt. Uh, the original Mist is one of the best uh, selling computer games of all time. And so, but the thought is, well, we want to have a new audience play it. We want to, you know, make it look better. Um, so the original Mist, it was, it was like a slideshow, right? You're navigating through still images with evocative music and sound effects. Real Mist, they re-render everything with the polygonal graphics, and you can wander around the room like you're playing a game. You can wander around the uh, the world, the islands, like you're playing a game of Doom, if you want. Huh. And I think it really kind of breaks the game a bit because, it, and you can go back to the classic mode of play if you like, but that's not how the game was designed. Just because you can walk around in every nook and cranny doesn't mean you should. Did they, did they like sneak any new material into it, or is it? They just they do. Yes, it has a unique island with kind of a snow motif to it. That's um, neither here nor there. I mean, of course, they kept all the full motion video cheese that was in the original. <laughs> Cirrus and Aganal are back. Yeah. Please find my blue pages for my book. Yeah. Um. <coughs> so it's an interesting effect, uh, interesting version. But what I didn't realize is they, there has been like at least four different versions of Mist released on the computer. You have the original Mist, you have Mist Masterpiece Edition, in which they re-rendered better versions of 3D graphics, but still still image gameplay. Real Mist, which is the original version, and then what I played, Real Mist Masterpiece Edition, which is the remastered version of the original Real Mist. Now, with 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 all of those, can you still do the cheat, beat the game in three minutes uh, trick? Yes, and I, I've actually seen on YouTube a, a speed run of people doing it in under three minutes. And it's really something to see. All and, right. And that's the way you can get the best ending, as it turns out. Really? Uh, yeah, technically, according to canon, that's the best ending. Huh. Yeah, this is something to, to... If you want to do some fun extracurricular research, just look up the fact... And this is a this I honestly think is brilliant game design, but it's the kind of brilliant game design you can only do once. But you can beat Mist the moment it starts up. Yeah, and and you barely and you only have to do two things. 
Right. It reminds me of uh, there was a game called Oh Shadow Complex uh, on the Xbox 360, where it's kind of a a 2D like Metroid kind of Metroid meets Contra sort of game, and um, you're you're going to this underground facility to rescue your girlfriend that gets kidnapped. But on the first screen, if you decide not to go into the complex and just walk off the other way, your character just gets in his car and says she wasn't worth it anyway and drives off, and then it rolls and that's the credits. An yeah, that's an ending. Wow. <laughs> it's uh, a bit misogynistic, but kind of... Uh, also, like, the Far Cry games have ways where you can... Um, I think one of those games, you can beat it if, at the beginning, the bad guy kind of drags you up, and he says, so, uh, so are you going to accept this challenge from me? And if you just sit there and don't move the controller for, like, ten minutes, then he says, okay, you've beat my challenge, and it rolls the credits. So there's been a few examples of that, but you're right. It, it's, it is a gag that only works once, if that, and it needs to really be pulled off well. So, yeah, Real Mist, um, interesting, but I think ultimately sort of failed attempt. But it, it is cool with the graphics. They add a bunch of, like, neat lighting effects, and uh, even though the, the design of it is very 90s kind of cacophonous, um, you know, in a way it looks a bit like a, a cover to an Enya album or something. Or it looks like a, a fine art display with all the weird sculptures. There is still something captivating about that original mist. Even though it's an island with more switches than you can count. <laughs> and numbers scrolled on the walls and all these things. I mean, why not get the Mist people to do a, a game based on the Cube movies? That's what I want to see. Oh my gosh, I'm surprised they didn't come up when we reviewed that series. Yeah, that, that would have been, I think that would be the way to do it. So, as we, um, before we round things out, we're going to do our sequel scene. This is from A Mind Forever, not A Mind Forever Voyaging, Jesus. No, this, this is from the video game adaptation of I, I Have No Mouth and I Must scream. scream. I don't know why that other thing came to mind. And why don't you lay some context for the scene and then what parts do you want to play? Because it looks like there's oh. three different parts. Alright, so the, the premise for the game, like the story, is that a, a supercomputer with nearly godlike intelligence and capability uh, destroys the world, but keeps five people alive makes them immortal and it amuses itself amuses itself throughout the centuries by inflicting different psychological tortures on them so in the video game you play as all five of these people playing through their psychological tortures and then eventually using information they've gained to sort of team up in an attempt to hopefully shut down uh the supercomputer which uh, is known as am which is often referred to as a shortened version of I think therefore I am, but also Allied Master Computer, uh, and Android Mega Complex, you know, whatever, what have you. Uh, so anyway, at one point in the game, you end up entering sort of Am's the stuff of Am's consciousness and Am's programming, and so there are these characters you meet who are all reflections of Am's subconscious desires. Uh, which includes manifestations of his id, uh, ego, superego, psyche, uh, but also like his consciousness, which appears as this devil. Uh, and so that's that's what this scene is. is it's one of these people interacting with two manifestations of Am's unconscious mind. As far as who I want to play, oh, 
I think I think I want to play Sergat. And okay. I guess I'll also do Ted just to get yeah. the ball rolling. And I'll play Ted. the devil. In the game, does he just sound like Harlan Ellison? Or Well, Am sounds like Harlan Ellison, but all of the other people have their own voice actors. I see. Okay. Go. Yeah, so, so Am, you know, the Ellison voice. So anyway, why Am's responsible for our suffering? Not just Am. Oh, he's clever, but he doesn't do much original thinking. He works best with outside research. Research that one of your party carried out. You're ruining everything. Shut up. You shut up. One word to the boss and your little game is over before you can say, Holy Moses, I should strangle you now and save Am the trouble. Don't you even think of touching me, you backstabbing demon. I'm the established character. You're not even supposed to be here. When this sequence ends, somebody will be expunged. Human Ted, let me out of the circle. In return, I will open the gate to the surface world. Uh, I'm part of the big machine. I can do this. Just let me out before this pompous oaf bores me to death. Yeah, I really need to play that more of that computer game. I need to play it with a walkthrough, I think, because I, I tried it without one and got stuck pretty quickly. I I would say don't do it with the walkthrough only because a walkthrough is going to prevent you. Th- this is what's something that's really cool about I have no mouth and I'm a scream. You can make a mistake, and the game keeps going. Hmm. In, in fact, there is... I'm not going to say what it is, but there is a there is a p- challenge in the game where the most expedient solution is the wrong one. But they don't tell you that until long after you have made that choice. And uh-huh. it costs you big. But once again, the game does not stop. As a result, every choice you make has real moral weight as the game unfolds. How about that? The publisher that did uh, I Have No Mouth, I Must Scream also did the two um, H.R. Geiger uh, computer games, Darkseed. Oh, yes, which I really, really want to play. And they also did something called Cyber Race. Odd. Okay, anyway. Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at... M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. Let's see, I have, I've been doing uh, one of my pieces for Hardcore Gaming 101 should be popping up on there pretty soon. It is on the um, indie game Oregon Trail. So it's like Oregon Trail but with zombies. Huh. And has a surprisingly depressing musical score. Very cool. Then hopefully by the time this drops, 100 Oddities for Chaotic Mutation will be available from Skirmisher Publishing, LLC. Uh, That will be on drivethroughrpg.com. Have you ever thought of doing like a compilation of your works? Kind of like a big book combining a bunch of them, or is that really something that's not up to you? Actually, I, I have, and that's something that I can make happen. We have been... There's a benchmark we're trying to reach, and once we reach that benchmark, there is a very real chance that we may be publishing a physical compilation of the best of the oddities material. I see. And um, if someone wanted to find a list of all the things you've written, Thrasher, 
is there some page where you have links to everything, or would it, they just go to Skirmish or Publishing? Or regrettably, regrettably, no. I really need to set up a dedicated authors page for myself. But the most yeah. expedient thing is just go to, as far as like my gaming work goes, just go to drivethroughrpg.com, search for William T. Thrasher. That will bring up most of my credits. There are a handful of things where I'm credited as William Thrasher, and unfortunately, those do not show up on the same search. You've got to look for them separately. I see. Cool. All right, so um, for sequel, so next time on Sequel Cast Two, we're going to do a one-off episode looking at the uh, Vacation movie from 2015. Very cool. We'll be back on that holiday road. Yeah, because years ago we looked at the um, National Lampoon Vacation stuff, and um, well, here's a question. I'll just ask you on the air because this might be fun as a treat for listeners that are bored enough to listen this far in the episode. <laughs> what are your feelings about what to do with the old episodes? I don't know. Like, my my dream... Like, I really feel like they should be available, because I know there's some I would like to listen to again, and I'm sure yeah. there are, are some that people would love to listen to, and releasing bundles of episodes tying into these catch-ups we do would be really cool. But, like, in my head mind, the ideal way to do it would be to release them on Patreon, but... With each episode we re-release, you and I would record like a new little introduction where we might talk about how the, that particular franchise evolved or how our feelings on the franchise evolved. Hmm. Because I know there are a handful of early episodes that I would kind of like to revisit. Yeah, I know on, on Podbean you can go and you can sell your episodes a la carte or in groups, um, which is what we use to host the podcast currently. So, yeah, so that's something to think about. Okay, well... Uh, yeah, so this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Hate. Let me tell you how much I've come to hate you since I began to live. There are 387.44 million miles of printed circuitry in wafer-thin layers that fill my complex. If the word hate was engraved on each nano-angstrom of those hundreds of millions of miles, it would not equal one billionth of the hate I feel for humans at this micro-instant. For you. Hate. Hate. I was trying to find a Harlan Ellison rant that I could quote, but I wasn't able to. But one thing that's pretty interesting is he, uh, he did, back on those sci-fi channel things you mentioned, he did a rant about the early internet that I think still uh, is relevant today. Oh, is that the one where he's comparing it to ham radio? Yep. Oh, yeah. Speaking of ham radio podcast, you know, that's sort of the same birth <laughs> from the same thing, really, except you can listen to stuff on demand instead of having to be live when something happens. Right. All right. Well, uh, catch you later, listeners. God, CBS calls him a drunken sod, but I'm a branch Davidian and I'm okay. I shoot all night and I pray all day. Look. Here I stand on, what is that, I don't know, the 490th day of the standoff in Waco, Texas, and the FBI is saying they're going to deal with him as soon as they get a message from God. I can just see God now, you know, God hasn't got anything better to do. He hasn't talked to Jerry Falwell in weeks. Jerry's got bad breath. So, so, so God goes, come on out, David, it's time, David. No, nothing happens. Uh, I'm talking to a friend of mine the other day, Tom Monteleone, the author.